Well, it's August, and uh, like normally in August, we usually spend a few weeks to answer Bible questions that you have submitted in the weeks before. Many of you who read the bulletin noticed that you could submit Bible questions, and you have. And so we just like to take this time, since a lot of people are gone for vacation, and people are coming and going, and there's visitors, to just kind of take a break from our normal series and just spend some time answering questions that you are curious about, which we probably wouldn't end up answering over the course of this series that we're doing, maybe for quite some time. I also want you to know that uh, you may have asked a question, and that question will not be addressed, but there are some handouts in the foyer that uh, you might want to check on, and your question might be there, and then we might just have a little explanation on where you can get information, because it's probably been answered in a lesson or a sermon or in a Q&A session in years past, so please take note of that. Also, I just want you to know that every time we do this, after the first sermon, everybody thinks, man, that's cool. Uh, you know, I've got a question or three. And so then we get bombarded the week after with, uh, you know, 150 more questions. Well, I just want you to know we have more questions now already submitted than we can answer. So you'll just have to hit up your elders and pastors and interns and just say, hey, I want to know the answer to this. And if they don't know the answer, they can get it for you. So the first question that we have to address this morning is really a huge topic. And it would be fun to just spend three or four months on this one question. But of course we can't. And everybody else wants their question answered. And so a lot of these questions, I can't give any detailed exegesis about them just because, uh, you know, other people are waiting to hear their questions. So if it sounds like I'm talking fast, it's because I am talking fast. I'm talking as fast as I can because I want to, to answer as many of the questions that get submitted as possible. But this particular question is so huge and it has so many um texts that relate to it that are misinterpreted that it is very tempting and I just want you to know my initial answer was three times as big as I'm going to give you and I had to just whittle it down and whittle it down until now it's still the biggest answer but uh, we're going to try and go through it quickly and it's this my friend my wife's friend is a Pentecostal and she says that if you don't speak in tongues then it means you're not saved well a statement like that shows great ignorance of the scripture. And so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you do that, I just want you to think about the irony of such a statement. Because those who make that statement do not speak in tongues themselves. Which means they are not saved. Oh, they say they speak in tongues, but as we shall see, they do not. Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to survey some of the reasons... Uh, that that statement is false. And as you uh, think about those who believe in the speaking of tongues, they basically fall into three camps. The oldest of the camps is called the Pentecostal movement, and they gave birth to what is called the Charismatic movement, and that movement gave birth to what is called the Third Wave movement. And so those are kind of the primary movements that believe in tongue speaking to one degree or, the, or another. They all have a little bit different uh, beliefs, but they all believe that the gift of tongues is still active today. 
Now, I also want you to say that, um, or I want you to um, understand that as we go through this issue, there's a lot of things I would like to address, but I can't. But if you get the sermon called Miracles Then and Now, which was preached a while back, um, it will help you uh, understand some of the issues that relate to all sign gifts and miracles and tongues and all of thing, and, and it, most of it all applies to tongues as well. Um, from According to Kevin Hobson, who works with our website, he says it is the number one listen to sermon. So you can look at that and um, listen to it to get a copy from the office or download it on from um, the website and you can listen. It'll help you understand a little bit more detail um, just about what we're talking with this morning. But know this, that all sign gifts have never been given as the norm for all believers They've always been given to a select group of people in a specific geographical location for a limited amount of time while the Bible was being written. So just know that. All right, now first we need to ask ourselves this. What is the gift of tongues? And again, I'm going to be racing through these passages. You can try and keep up or just listen or write them down or whatever you want. The the, the key text to go to is in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, where at Pentecost it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, that is other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. You say, well, Jack, how do you know that it, it was other languages and not just gibberish or you know a static speech which is what you hear in tongue speaking circles today well it's because verse verses 6 through 11 go on to say that they were bewildered those who were listening to the apostles speak in tongues because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language they were amazed and astonished saying why are not why are not all these who are speaking galileans and what well, what they were thinking is these guys are all from Galilee, and yet we're hearing them speak in our own native tongue. Verse 8 goes on to say, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, there's a big list given of all these different kinds of languages. And finally, at the very end of verse 10, it says, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So, to have the biblical gift of tongues is to speak in a known language, a language known to mankind, which the speaker himself doesn't know. That is the legitimate gift of tongues. It is not a static speech, a learned behavior where people are taught to, you know, tilt back their head and go, la, la, la. That is not the gift of tongues. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says the legitimate use of tongues can be interpreted. In 1 Corinthians 14, 10, it says it is a language with meaning. In verse 13, it can be interpreted. In verse 26, it can be interpreted. In verse 27, it must be interpreted. So it is a known language. It is not gibberish. Secondly, realize that thousands get saved in the first five chapters of the book of Acts and none of them speak in tongues. I mean, that's a pretty strong point to say all believers must speak in tongues and yet none of them do when thousands are being added to the church, even when the sign gifts were prevalent. Later in Acts 10.46 and 19.6, 
a small group of Gentiles and a group of John the Baptist disciples do believe and do speak in tongues. But the reason for that was to let the Jews know and to let the Gentiles know and to let the disciples of John know that Gentiles, Jews and the disciples of John were all to be included into the church and all had equal status. And it only happened once. Third, realize that in the first 500 years of the church, no early church father ever wrote about any orthodox church group or believer who ever spoke in tongues. That's a pretty strong argument. That 500 years went by and no one's speaking in tongues. Let me remind you that 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 address the use of spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 is, can be summarized by saying basically, listen, every believer has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to each believer. Each gift is different according to the Spirit's will for the common good of the body of Christ. That is kind of the argument of chapter 12. The argument of chapter 13 is make sure you use your gifts in love. Chapter 14 is let me give you detailed explanation about the gift of tongues because you've obviously got it all messed up. Okay, so that's how these three chapters, they're all relating to spiritual gifts. That's how they address. So I'm going to be referencing them uh, frequently. So the fourth thing is all spiritual gifts are to be used for the edification of others. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says spiritual gifts are given for the common good. In verse 25 of chapter 12, it says spiritual gifts are given so members can care for one another. In 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4, it says prophecy is for edification of the church. The end of verse 5, tongues is to edify the church. Verse 12, we are to seek to edify the church. Verse 17, it's wrong to use a gift that doesn't edify others. The end of verse 26, look there, of chapter 14, let all things be done for edification. Now, is that clear or not? All spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to individuals for the edification of other believers, not self. Anyone who claims to have a spiritual gift and it's for themselves, it's their own private spiritual gift, does not have a spiritual gift or is using it improperly. Fifth, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts just as he pleases. In other words, not everyone has the same gift, which means not every believer has the gift of tongues. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he pleases. And in verses 14 to the end of chapter 12, Paul argues that not everyone has the same spiritual gift. So to say that everybody needs to speak in tongues is just a contradiction of what Paul says at the end of chapter 12. Fifth, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 makes it clear that the whole, or, or sixth, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Now, there's a whole bunch of argumentation about when they will cease. It says when the perfect comes, and some people say, well, that's when Christ comes back. Others say, no, that's when the biblical canon was completed, the New Testament was completed. Uh, But the Greek does indicate that tongues will cease, and they will cease completely and permanently. 
And if church history is borne out, that they have ceased. Even the Bible bears this out, as none of the later books of the New Testament ever mention anyone speaking in tongues. Even by the end of the first century, it had fallen out of disuse. Eight, in 1 Corinthians 14.22, tongues is a sign for unbelievers, not believers. And common uh, tongue-speaking groups where everybody gets together, a whole bunch of believers, and they all start uttering gibberish and mass confusion and emotional hysteria. And then they say, oh, we're speaking in tongues. Where are the unbelievers who are there to hear the gospel preached in their known language? Ninth, it is... This is actually an entire list of things. I just grouped them up so I didn't have to go up to 29 or whatever. Um, ninth, uh, the improper use of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12.2. No one, uh, you're using, the, ter- you are using um, the gift of tongues improperly when no one understands you. Or verse 4, when you edify yourself. Or verse 5, when it is not interpreted, or verse 6, when it does not reveal knowledge and impart understanding. Paul makes it clear in verses 6 through 11, if you don't speak in a known language, then you are like somebody, like a child who goes up to a piano and just plays random notes, or like a bugler who doesn't know how to play the bugle, and he can't call anybody to, to battle, and he says you're like one who just speaks into the air. No one's listening. In verse 11, you are like a barbarian. In verse 12, you are not edifying the church. In verse 14, your mind is unfruitful. In verses 16 and 7, no one can give thanks or say amen because they don't know what you're saying and you don't know what you're saying. Verse 19 is a waste of time. Verse 23, unbelievers will think you are mad. In verse 24, no one is convicted of God's truth. And this is what we are seeing in so-called tongues-speaking churches today. Tenth, there is a list of things that we will list under the single title of the proper use of tongues. When tongues are used properly, or this is some of the instruction on the proper use of tongues, it is always for the edification of others. And we've already mentioned this, so I'm not going to give you the verse references, but that's a huge one because most people who speak in tongues do it for the edification of self. And not only that, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15 and 19, tongues must be done by engaging your mind. In verse 27, it must be done two or three at the most. Each in turn with an interpreter. Verses 34 through 36, women can never use the gift of tongues in church. Verse 40, tongues must be exercised in a properly and orderly manner. If you deviate from that, you're deviating from the scriptures and you're sinning. 11. Tongues has bad company. The first group to claim to speak in tongues were the Montanist heretics. And another group of quasi-Christian French militants in the 17th century who saw it as their Christian goal to kill Roman Catholics. They were called the Sevenines or something like that. I can't even pronounce the word. It's one of those French words. Um, they spoke in a static speech. 
Another group called the Shakers, founded in the 17th century by Mother Anne Lee, who claimed to be the female equivalent of Christ, also spoke with ecstatic speech or gibberish. Followers of Edward Irving, Scottish Presbyterian pastor of the 17th century, also taught his followers to speak in ecstatic speech. They were exposed later as being charlatans as they were falsifying uh, prophecies. They were claiming to have the gift of prophecy, but what they do is they find out about things before they or, or find out things were going to happen or after they would happen and then tell everybody they predicted it before. The sect eventually became known as the Catholic Apostolic Church. In addition to these heretical and quasi-Christian sects, a status speech is an unintelligible gibberish is practiced by some pagan African tribes, Muslims, Eskimos, and Tibetan monks. So, enough said. If you want to study up more on this, I would recommend John MacArthur's book, Charismatic Chaos, or John Napier's book, The Charismatic Challenge. Or Richard Belcher's book, A Journey in the Spirit, and that would help you sort through this in more detail. Second question. At the end of Hebrews 11, it says Old Testament saints were commended for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. What is the something better that makes them perfect? Is the Messiah the connection? And is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, a related passage? So this is a good... I mentioned this a while back, and I purposely didn't comment on that because I was running out of time. Um, but Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40 says, And all these, speaking of those who lived in faith, who died as martyrs because of their faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And I just stop there for a second. They believed God's message of a promised Messiah and they were saved, but they never experienced any of the blessings of the new covenant because the new covenant wasn't inaugurated yet. Verse 40 continues because God had provided something better for us. I'll stop there. What's that? Well, the something better that God provided for us is we know who the Messiah is, Jesus of Nazareth. We know his teaching in the Gospels. We know his teaching in the New Testament books. We know what he accomplished on on the cross. We experience some of the blessings of the New Covenant. That is the something better for us. Then he says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Point being, without the death of the Messiah, which did not happen until the author of Hebrews' time, The Old Testament saints could not be saved or perfected. They looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come, live his life, die a substitutionary death so that they could be made perfect. And yes, it is true that Peter in 1 Peter um, chapter um, 1 verses 10 through 12 speaks of the prophets who looked ahead and longed to know the things that we all take for granted. They wanted to know who the Messiah is. They wanted to know the teachings of the Messiah. They wanted to know that about his death on the cross and how he would save sinners. They would want to know all of this stuff, which we already know. So yes, there is a connection. Yes, it is in the Messiah. And yes, all believers know that. Third, Testimony, what is proper? I have a Christian friend who abhors, you know, modern day testimonies. You know, I used to push drugs or I used to be wicked or whatever. And uh, because he feels it's bragging about sin. Is he right? 
What scriptures clearly show how we are to give our testimony? Well, granted, there are those who use their testimonies as a platform to boast about their sin. I mean, you know, people are sinners, and so they pretty much do everything that could be done right and use it for wrong. So we'll just say that, yeah, that happens. Let's just admit it. But having said that, it is good to give testimony to how God's grace has transformed your life. That is a good thing. Some might argue that texts such as Luke 9.62, which says, Jesus speaking, no one after putting to his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Or they might reference Philippians 3.13, where he speaks of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, saying, see, we shouldn't even talk about the past. We shouldn't even look back there. We shouldn't even go there. But that's not what those texts are talking about. Those texts are talking about two primary things. First, don't let your past sins discourage you or distract you from your present obedience or don't long to do those past sins which you have now moved on from. Those would be wrong. But he is not saying don't give testimony um, to God's transforming grace in your life. So if you had an especially sordid past, were an especially you know, wicked person, um, and God has saved you from that, and he has transformed your life, why wouldn't you want to give glory to God for what he has done for you? That would be my question. I can't see any reason not to do that. What scriptures would I point to? Well, I would point to Acts 8, which describes how wicked Paul was. I would look at Paul's testimony to the Jews in Acts 22, where he describes how wicked he was before he was saved. And Acts 26, where he gives testimony before Agrippa and explains how wicked he was, how he was causing, forcing Christians to blaspheme God, how he was imprisoning them, how he was infuriated at them, breathing breathing threats against the church, how he participated in their death, and how God changed him. I would look at Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1.13, where he describes himself as an arrogant, unbelieving, blasphemer, persecutor, and violent aggressor. Now, you can't get much worse than that. Later in 15 and verses 15 and 16 in 1 Timothy 1, he describes himself as the foremost sinner. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he describes himself as the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. In Ephesians 3, 8, he describes himself as the least of all saints. Point made. It's okay to give testimony to how God has changed you from a wicked person to a saint. It is not good to boast about your sin and your capacity to sin in the past. It should be all done for the glory of God. Four, please speak on Lot, a righteous man who offered up his daughters to the men of Sodom so they could be raped. That's an interesting question. He couldn't ask the angels in his house for help. I also wonder how his daughters succeeded in their plan, incest with their drunken, unaware father, and how both could just happen to get pregnant as a result. Well, nothing just happens. How would God assist such a sinful plan? Well, first we know that Lot was a righteous man. How do we know that? Well, Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 says that God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul 
tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So three times it calls him righteous. And if you wonder, well, where did Peter get this from? Well, he gets from the Old Testament. You remember what happened in Genesis 18? Um, God, uh, the angel, the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ appears with two angels. They have a little talk with uh, Abraham. They eat and then Christ or the angel of the Lord says to the other two angels, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do to, you know, his nephew's city, Sodom? And so Abraham begins to entreat the Lord when he hears that God's going to destroy Sodom and says, Lord, you know, please do not be angry with your servant. But if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? God says, sure. Oh, please don't be angry, but if there are 45? Yeah, 45. 40? Yeah, 40. 30? 30. 20? 20. Please don't be angry. If there's 10, and God says, I won't even destroy the city if there's 10. But how many was there? One. Lot. Righteous men. So we know Lot was righteous. Okay, we got that part answered. Now, what you need to realize is everyone sins. Even righteous people sin. Even righteous people do what is wrong. And righteousness is not a matter of being perfect. Righteousness is a matter of having faith in God. Remember Galatians 3, 6 and James 2, 23, all quote uh, Genesis 15, 6, which says um, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We receive our righteousness by placing our faith in Christ, not because we're perfect. I mean, if that was the case, none of us would ever be righteous. What you have to do, though, when you think about, well, you know, how in the world could he, you know, offer his daughters up to these savage homosexual men so they could be raped? Well, you need to put yourself in the Lot's position. You understand that culture that when you had a visitor to your house, when you had a stranger and that person came under your roof, you were under responsibility of the highest degree to take care of that person, to feed them and provide for them. Not only that, in this case, they're angels. And you know, Lot had never entertained angels before. I don't know if you have. It's not something that normally happens. It's a pretty big deal. Lot doesn't have a Bible. It's not written yet. He doesn't know what angels can do. He feels very responsible to protect his heavenly visitors. The men of Sodom are wicked. They're angry. They're pounding at his door, trying to get after these things. And he does... Whatever he thinks he can do, it's like, take my daughters. But whatever you do, don't take these angels. You know, these people are from heaven. I mean, what would you do? And it's easy to say, well, I would have a quiet time. Have a devotion and uh, talk to God about it, you know. Maybe pray about it. Maybe, you know, ask the angels, so what kind of power are you guys wielding these days? You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? It's always easy after the crisis to criticize those who have gone through it and may not have made the best decision. But if you were there and a wicked, angry mob was pounding at your door and you had angels, heavenly visitors, you would feel responsible to protect them. And so he thought, I'll give them my daughters. I mean, that we'll try that. 
You know, it's like that TV show called 24 Hours where the main character, uh, who's played by Keith or Sutherland, um, you know, is trying to save the world in 24 hours. And you know what? He's desperate. You know, he doesn't sleep for the whole 24 hours. Um, he, he's desperate. You know, he's dealing with terrorists. And when he needs information from somebody, he doesn't say, well, we're going to have to take you in. We're going to have to interrogate you. You're going to have to get your lawyers. And, you know, and over the course of time, maybe you'll cooperate. He shoots them in the kneecap and says, speak. And if they, they don't, then he shoots them in the other kneecap. Why? Because it's desperate times which require desperate measures. And so Lot was in a desperate situation. And so he took desperate measures to try and protect his angelic visitors. Yes, also God allowed his daughters to get pregnant by him. They fled the city. Yes, they got him drunk. And you say, why would God do that? Because God knows what's best. You think, well, how could that be best? Well, let me just give you an example. The two daughters gave birth to two sons, Moab and Ammon. Both of them became groups that God, in the course of Bible history, uses for his purposes. Remember, there's a significant individual who came from Moab, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was the great-grandmother of David who produced the Messiah. Without this instance, Jesus wasn't born. So see, God knows things that a lot of times you think, well, why does he do that? Because he's God and he knows everything and you don't. And so we just have to say, okay, he let it happen. It didn't just happen by chance. There was a purpose in it all. God allowed it to happen and used it for his good purposes. Question number five, is anger okay? Is emotional outburst sin And when is righteous indignation justified? Well, first of all, anger is okay when it's righteous anger. And righteous anger is anger that is in defense of the character and holiness of God. Righteous anger is okay when it is in defense of the mistreatment of others. Anger is unrighteous anger when it is defense of self. Because you don't like something or you aren't getting what you want. And that's where most anger falls in the category of people don't get what they want and so they get angry. Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick and tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and the one who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. You can see why James said in James 1, verses 19 and 20, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. One of my favorite texts that has humbled me many times is Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger abides in the bosom of fools. Are outbursts of anger sin? Yes, they are sin. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, Like a city that is broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In other words, ready to be plundered. Probably the scariest text on outbursts of anger is Galatians five nineteen and 21, where Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, and impure, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, here it is, will not inherit the kingdom of God. A Christian, as they grow in the Lord, should gain more and more control over their spirit, over their emotions. Somebody who has been a Christian for a long time and is characterized by outbursts of anger has a banner over their life which says, I am not going to heaven. That's what the word of God says. Six, you've mentioned over the years that we should teach our children to do things biblically because it pleases God. But does anything really please him? What if they are unsaved? How can they even desire such a thing? And what they're asking here is, you know, if you've got an unbelieving child, then why bother teaching them to please God when they can't please God? The argument goes something like this. We know that unbelievers can't please God, Romans 8, 5 through 8. We know that unbelievers are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And we know that children, you know, aren't just automatically saved. When they're young, they have to give their life to Christ. And so why teach them to pray? Why teach them to read the Bible? Why teach them to obey God and give and serve and do all those things Christians do if they never desire to give glory to God until they're saved? Well, here's the answer. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up your child, chain up a child on the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a command. Train up a child on the way he should go. What way is that? In obedience to the Lord. Seeking to please the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Texts like these and many others command parents to train their children to live like believers. Now you think, well, Why? If they're not, because it always gives glory to God when people submit to his word. It displays to the world his standard of righteousness for holy behavior. So even though an unbeliever, an unbelieving child may not desire to give glory to God, yet they still give glory to God, not volitionally, but by living out God's truth in their life, they demonstrate God's holy standard and the grace he has extended to us by giving us his word. The issue is settled, though, if you read Colossians 3.20, which says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. 7. Please explain Ezekiel 18.24. I'm sure most of us have this one memorized. (laughs) 18.24. Arminians use this scripture. How do I answer back? Also, for my curiosity, how could Elijah be taken to heaven if Christ's blood had not been shed for his sins? Well, we're going to answer the second part first. Elijah was saved like any other Old Testament saint. Old Testament saints are saved through faith in God's promises. They looked ahead to the death of the Messiah, whose death would secure for them salvation. So they, through faith, were saved by Christ in hope of his coming. 
We in turn are saved in retrospect as we look back to Christ's death in history. But in both cases, whether you're an Old Testament saint looking ahead or a New Testament saint looking back, everybody is saved by faith in Christ and by his blood shed on the cross. Now, let's go back to the first part of the question about Ezekiel 18.24 and Armenians. Now, I just want you to know this is not Armenians. Okay, we're talking about Jacobus Arminius, who lived in 1559 to 1609, theological sparring partner of John Calvin. Last time I mentioned Arminian theology, there were some Armenians who came up after or were a little bit put out that I picked on them. Uh, I'm not talking about Armenians, I'm talking about Arminians, and so please keep the distinction. Jacobus Arminius' main problem with the reformers is that he had a whole different definition of predestination. And that predestination is God kind of looking into the future or, or waiting to see if men would seek him so he could choose them in response to their seeking him. Arminius taught that men have a more active role in determining their salvation than Calvin taught. Calvin taught what we teach, and that is that men don't seek God on their own. None is righteous. They flee from the light. They don't want God. They don't want to be saved. They want their sin, and that's what they love. It is not until God, by his grace, grants them repentance, draws them to himself, opens their heart, that they can see the truth, understand the truth, and willingly place their faith in the Messiah. So Arminius said, no, that's not how it works. What happens is, is people on their own can seek God, and then God, by his grace, saves them. So a whole different thing. The problem is, is that the later followers of Arminius were more liberal than Arminius himself, just as a lot of the followers of Calvin are more Calvinistic than Calvin was. And they believe that the perseverance of the saints or eternal security was not taught in the scripture. They believe that you can lose or forfeit or hand back your salvation. The Nazarene denomination, for example, is of the liberal Arminian persuasion, believing you can lose your salvation and gain it back over and over again. Now, having that bit of background, Ezekiel 18.24 reads, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? Polite answer, no. All of his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. Now it's argued that by those who are of the liberal Arminian persuasion that see this person was walking with the Lord, they were saved, they committed sin, and they lost their salvation. No, I believe this text is speaking of apostasy. We'll explain that in just a minute. And if you look at the context, you will see that he's not talking about eternal salvation as much as physical death. If you look at verses 4 and 20, or the following context of verse 26, you will see that he is speaking of physical death when uh, verse 26 reads, for instance, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies because of it, or... Uh, For his iniquity, which he has committed, he will die. That is physically. Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And so he is talking about physical death. 
But the scriptures do speak of three categories of people who walk with the Lord for a time and then turn away from him. And if you want to study this in more detail, I would encourage you to get the um, tapes or CDs or lessons or download them from the website in the classes under the basic Bible doctrine class under the, the portion that deals with the relationship between faith and works because uh, many scriptures are offered, which I am not even going to go into. But basically, these are the three categories of people who might walk with the Lord and then stop walking with the Lord for a time or permanently. One, believers who are caught in sin. For instance, David sinned and for nine months he was living in unrepentance. Secondly, unbelievers who say they are Christians, but who don't walk with the Lord. They just say they're Christians, but are not, and they don't walk with the Lord. Third, there are apostates, which is what I think um, Ezekiel is talking about. Those who say they are believers for a while, but are never really saved, learn the gospel, have fellowship with the saints, experience, you know, Christianity to the fullest, and then depart and deny that they are Christians and leave the Christian faith to live as an unbeliever or some other religion. And if you want to learn more about these, get the Bible study, or you can listen to the sermon I recently preached on Judas Iscariot, who is the premier example in the Bible of somebody who has gone apostate. Now, related to this question is a question about Judas Iscariot, and I will read it and then answer both of these together about what apostasy is and some of the concluding remarks about it. In your sermon that included the plight of Judas Iscariot, you said, you stated that Judas is in hell. Doesn't the fact that he hung himself show a possibility of remorse or contrition? Usually when someone is not sorry for something he has done, he does not go out and kill himself, but is haughty and brags about the deed. I have always believed that only God, capitals, knows the heart of each of us as sinners, and yet you were adamant in your sermon that you know for absolute certain that Judas is in hell. Why do you believe so strongly that before he killed himself, that he absolutely did not repent for his terrible deed, something that God knew would occur, and a deed that ultimately fulfilled God's plan for Jesus to die in order to make our salvation possible? Do you call this reading between the lines? Now, this is actually five questions. (laughs) The first question is, How do I know Judas is in hell? Secondly, does sorry usually mean there is true repentance? Third, how can I or anyone else judge the heart of someone else? Four, does the fact that Judas was used by God to bring about the death of Christ, which made salvation possible for us, argue for his being saved? And five, am I reading between the lines? So let's just answer each of these one at a time. How do I know Judas is in hell? Well, the gospel writers only speak of him in a derogatory way with disdain as a betrayer, as greedy, as a thief, as a liar, as a deceiver, all characteristics of one who is unsaved. Now, notice that Paul was some of these things and worse, and yet he is, no one ever refers to him that way. When somebody is saved, their past life is forgotten. For Judas, his life is remembered as being evil. Satan possessed Judas and only unbelievers can be possessed. Judas last act was not an act of righteousness. It was an act of murder. He committed self murder against the scriptures, against what he knew the word of God said. And not only that, Judas, Judas, Jesus referred to Judas as a devil. 
After Judas hung himself, which of course was after he had that sorrow that moved him to hang himself, Peter in Acts 1 verses 15 through 20 referred to Judas as a wicked betrayer who committed self-murder and whose house is to be left desolate as predicted by the Psalms. The scriptures never refer to him as a believer or one who is saved, but always as an apostate. A clincher text is Matthew 26, 24 and 25, which says the son of man is going to go just as it is written of him, Jesus speaking, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. The word woe means damnation. And for every believer, it's good for them that they are born because they have all their sins forgiven and they live in perfect, blessed happiness with Christ for all eternity. Jesus' assessment of John is woe, damnation to him. Finally, in John 17, 12, in the high priestly prayer, another clincher text, Jesus says this to the father. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The phrase son of perdition is a Hebrew idiom, meaning son destined for damnation and hell. And so that is how I know Judas is in hell because the scriptures say so. Secondly, doesn't sorry usually mean there is true repentance? No. Most unbelievers feel sorrow or remorse when they sin and do wrong. And it's because God has placed their law in everyone's heart and they all have a conscience that either accuses or defends them. And so most people, when they do evil, feel bad about it. It doesn't mean they're saved. Classic example is Esau. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 describe him with these words that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau was very sorry, but he is described as one that God hated And one that found no place for repentance, even though he wept, was very sorry that he didn't get the cash, the goods, the blessing. He wasn't saved. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there are two kinds of sorrow. One, that is sorrow that you aren't getting something or you're missing out on something or you're having to suffer the consequences of your sin, worldly sorrow. Then there is sorrow that feels bad that you've sinned against a holy God. And that is the sorrow that is true repentance and produces fruit of repentance, which is a transformed life. Judas, of course, did not have a transformed life. Or a sorrow that was godly sorrow leading to salvation. Third, how can I or anyone else judge the heart of someone? Well, I would encourage you to listen to the sermon I preached a while back on Luke 6.37 called Do and Do Not Judge. 
And we go into this question in detail, but in short, all Christians are commanded to use discernment. To use discernment is to judge things by the word of God. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says that we are to examine everything carefully and to hold on to that which is good. You are commanded to do that, to make judgments about everything. That includes people. Now, you do not have the right to condemn people to hell. Only God can do that. But you do have to use judgment in discerning right or wrong as things comply with or do not comply with the word of God. We are also commanded to judge those within the church. First Corinthians fifteen twelve says, are we not to judge those within the church? The implied answer is, of course, the context is church discipline. Every case of church discipline, the church is to judge others. You see somebody in sin, you go talk to him. If he doesn't repent, you bring more. You make a judgment. If he repents, no, we go talk to him with more. We bring him before the church. Judgment. Can people, can people know other people's motives? Well, not perfectly. Actions reveal what is in the heart. The heart produces the actions of our lives. Uh, life flows from the heart, Proverbs 4.23. So what a person does tells us some things about their heart. Now, we don't know their motives perfectly, but we know that if someone knows better and sins, we know they have evil motives in their heart even though we may not know what they are perfectly. Usually people, though, ask this question because they feel uncomfortable when someone says, so-and-so is not a believer, or I don't think so-and-so is saved. And they think, well, isn't that kind of judging? Isn't that kind of censorious and wicked? Well, it's judging, but it's not censorious and wicked. Here is an example. A man you know is a practicing homosexual or a drunkard or an adulterer. And he's going on in this sin. First Corinthians six, nine and ten, Galatians five, nineteen through twenty one, Ephesians five, three through five say that those who practice homosexuality or those who practice drunkenness or those who are adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are direct statements of scripture that judge people who behave in a certain way. So you hear someone make a comment about a practicing homosexual or drunkard or adulterer or whatever, and you hear them say, that person is not saved. Now, is, are, do they say that because they can read that person's mind and they know their motives? No, they say that because they know the word of God and they're agreeing with the word of God. That's all. The scriptures are what judge us. And if you know and agree with the scriptures, that doesn't make you able to read someone's mind nor does it make you evil or wrong to say, listen, you're going to hell. Usually the reason people don't like other people to make statements like that is they have the fear of men that they are cowards. They are afraid of persecution and they desire to be liked by other people. And so they don't love people enough to come to them and say, if you continue on in this behavior, the word of God says you're going to hell. Or you are living like a person who is on their way to hell. And so you don't say anything and then you say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, yes, you should. And I would encourage you to just read the New Testament. You'll see John the Baptist do it and Jesus do it and Paul do it and Peter do it and John do it. The loving thing to do is to tell somebody, listen, you're on your way to hell. You need to repent. 
and turn from your wicked way and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Four, doesn't the fact that Judas was used by God to bring about the death of Christ and make salvation possible argue for his being saved? No. God used Satan, he used demons, he used Pilate, he used Herod, he used myriads of unbelievers to bring about our salvation. It doesn't mean they were all saved. God uses unbelievers to accomplish his will. Fifth, am I reading between the lines? No. Okay, that's all the time we have for the questions today. But uh, uh, hopefully I will be able to address others um, in uh, the couple weeks to come. But we do have an uh, announcement now.